Hello, Belinda. Hi, Omar. What is this week's gratitude blooming theme? It's card number 34, the foxglove flower, representing sing. <laughs> With the rooster on cue. I love it. That was, you can't make this stuff up. Um, I appreciate uh, all the, the themes that we're getting to revisit and the opportunity to interview folks each week. And it's just been a delight to get to hear these super powerful stories uh, get a chance to digest them and then share them to the broader uh, community. And so it's just, I don't know, I'm feeling the joy of dialogue and the joy of conversation and the joy of like feeling like this meta garden that we talked about uh, growing. And so uh, I'm excited for uh, more of these. Yeah. And how often do we get to really hear the real life raw stories of people and their journeys. It's been such a gift. And also to get to hear stories of art happening in emergence. Uh, Arlene, it's been incredible having you and Anka curate the first eight, the collection of eight uh, pieces of artwork. And I would love to hear from you. How has it felt to collaborate with our designer Anka on this first set of eight. Oh, it's been such a joy for me. Joy is the word that comes up like week after week as I sort of watch Anka like spread her wings and um, create all this work under a really tight timeline. And they're always so surprising to me in some ways. And that's another way that I think art is, um, is a gift to us all is that it allows us to express something that, um, you know, we can't do with words. Maybe we could do with song, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the the beautiful part, right, is how we're finding all these different ways to show expression. Yeah. So in this week's art, Anka explores this theme and the foxglove flower, which um, we have done um, for another NFT project. Um, so, uh, the it was original NFT project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, so it was even a joy for me just to watch, um, watch it evolve. It, you know, it just, um, shows how everybody's voice is different and unique. And I, 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 I just, uh, it was just such a gift for me to, um, to witness her in this art. So in her art, there is a single foxglove stem with five pale blue white flowers set against a red and orange and pink background. A bumblebee looks stuck in one of the blooms, almost like it's drunk from taking in too much nectar and pollen. Bubbles of pollen fill the air, creating a glistening trail left from the path of this happy buzzing bumblebee. I love how playful Anka's composition of this flower is and how she relates joy to the theme of singing. And then to make the connection of joyful singing being a way to just get on with life. And I like to imagine that this bumblebee is singing as it happily works its way into each of the flower blooms in the drawing. So here's a clip where Anka describes the bumblebee that inspired her art this week. He was going on each flower like, and he was so 
passionate <laughs> about what he was doing. <laughs> uh, going from flower to flower, like with um, a lot of uh, hunger and passion and like buzzing. And I just remembered this bumblebee and I wanted to feature it in this uh, drawing. <laughs> kind of the joy for for living and for consumption in a way. <laughs> But in a in a good sense, I kind of went for my gut instinct with the colors. It's not something very calculated. But I think what I've read afterwards, because I've read a little bit about bumblebees, you know, bumblebees and bees are seen in the ultraviolet spectrum and they don't see red. So that was really cool because like the 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 plant is in the blue spectrum, ultraviolet kind of. And then the background, I made it like in the red spectrum. And that's a nice curiosity. <laughs> it was more about the joy of singing and getting on with your life. <laughs> and um, that's, that's about it. It doesn't have too much philosophy. <laughs> I love the feeling of joy in her voice as Anka is describing this uh, excited, passionate bee kind of going from foxglove petal to another. <laughs> I love how she also imagined the bumblebee stuck inside the flower. <laughs> and I just had this image of like Winnie the Pooh, like falling into a jar of honey and just being like, I'm happy, you know, it's a, a reminder that sometimes our joys can be very simple. Yeah, I had the experience of when I saw saw her, the first reveal of the art, I just, I couldn't stop laughing. It's a very fun, loving um, work of art. So I imagine these um, being, I could almost imagine them being like in children's books, right? There's something about the way children experience joy that maybe we can learn from too. And isn't that the power of nature is that there is just so much diversity and there really are no mistakes in nature with, with its whole ecosystem. And uh, it, uh, Anka's story kind of helped me imagine, well, what would the eyes of a bee be like looking into that uh, foxglove flower or how does the bee see the world? And uh, in some ways she's, um, offering it uh, the colors that it can't see in uh, real life through this art. So I have to, I must stay with my Winnie the Pooh uh, <laughs> reference for a second, because in high school, you know, in your senior year, your book, you get to write like a quote or something <laughs> under your name. And my senior year quote was, well, Eeyore frets. And piglet hesitates, and rabbit calculates, and owl pontificates. Pooh just is. And I just, I love that the bee is just is. The flower just is. And it's just that presence, and there's not this overthinking. And just even how Anka was like, there's not a lot of philosophy in this one. This is just <laughs> is, and enjoy it. And I just love the prompt that goes yes. with this card, uh, sing. What makes your heart sing? How does your song want to be expressed? So Omar, for you, how, what is that feeling? And 
these days, how are you expressing your song? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, I have an abundance of, I don't know, delights right now. And, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm fortunate. And actually I, so I was just doing this practice around collective acceleration, the art of waging peace, uh, with the community. And we were asked to do this exercise where the first thing is you name a personal habit that is a personal boulder, right? Something that is stuck in front of you. And then to name a movement or organizational habit that is a boulder. And then to name a societal habit that is a boulder. And so as I was going through this, and the first one was name a personal habit. And mine was scattered interests, was (laughs) I felt like was my like your personal boulder right now. And, and then it reminded me of another quote um, from, you know, the one was it the jack of all trades quote, which everybody knows, like the jack of all trades and the master of none. So, but I couldn't remember it. So I, I Googled it. And the full quote actually is a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Whoa. And it was actually written or said in response to William Shakespeare, who apparently at one point was like wanting to hang out with all the cool theater kids. <laughs> and he wasn't the theater kid. He was like a writer, but he wanted to hang out with them. And so they were, you know, it was his sort of way of like, how am I participating in this environment? Like I have all these different skills and interests. And so then all of a sudden it made my personal boulder not feel so heavy. It actually then, it it brought a lightness to it of like, okay, yes, I have lots of interests and that's okay. Um, So yes, that's where I'm at right now. And I'm literally visualizing you, Omar, as that bee and what your garden must look like. And I have to say, (laughs) it is one that I see as very colorful with many different beautiful flowers that all um, harmonize with each other. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, we, we just moved back into our house after a year of construction. And one of the first things that I was really excited to do was to replant, um, our garden. So we just last weekend, um, planted like, I think, uh, a couple hundred different plants. So we, I, I, I now have a blooming garden around me again. That's beautiful. Well, I'm excited to share about our special guest for this episode. It's a dear friend of mine, Melissa Lau, who I actually met through another friend. And you might say that for me, my song uh, is really around weaving community and finding people in serendipitous ways and and making a, a web uh, from those connections. And um, yeah, Melissa and I met... Um, through a business connection that I had. And we discovered that we had a lot of shared personal interests around nature and personal growth. And it's really beautiful to be able to share her story as someone who graduated from Harvard Business School, you know, checked off, checked off all the boxes for success, worked in tech, was a consultant for McKinsey, 
and found her way to singing as part of her personal practice and as a way of how she coaches others in the world to really share their gifts. So here's a clip of Melissa sharing about what her special gift is, her special song in the world. My main gift is catalyzing transformation. Mm. I work with leaders to help them to grow into the most authentic and powerful versions of themselves that they can be. And my personal belief, and from what I've seen working with people over a number of years, is that when people really show up as their true self, that gives other people permission to do the same. And when other people feel like they have permission to show up as they are, it creates this domino effect. It creates this chain reaction of freeing people's energy. It, it helps them to just unleash what's possible in them. And one of the big challenges that I see in many um, organizations is that people often feel like, oh, this is the way that things are done here. But when there's that space, when there's that permission, that for me is the real game changer. A lot of it is about catalyzing change. And for that to happen, it can't just be at the level of the mind. I mean, there's like our minds are very powerful, but there's also a limit to how much we can change when we're just focusing on our mind. And I knew that my voice was also one of the most powerful ways that I could support people's transformation. I found my way to a singing teacher um, who is half Persian, half American. And uh, she has worked with me over the years to learn to sing the poetry of classical Persian poets, people like Rumi, Hafez. And in that process of really connecting, well, one, singing in a foreign language, singing in Farsi, I couldn't use my mind. I actually had to come deeply just into my body and just feel what the words were. Um, I couldn't analytically understand it, but I could definitely feel it in my body how it was landing. Like singing feels like flying. It is like the closest I've ever felt to what it might be to be a bird, for example. And it helps me to just connect to the full range of my human experience. You know, if I'm feeling sad or angry or joyful, all of those things can be expressed even in the same song. And I feel like it just gives me the space to be able to just be with everything. Mm, having the space to be with everything and feeling that song in your body. It makes me think of what you just shared, Omar, of how you're owning that your song is multifaceted. And it's, you know, some people could say it's scattered and other people could say, wow, what a strength you can hold so many different things without being in the binary of choosing one versus the other. Yeah. And I, I love that she's singing in a language that she doesn't know. And so it's really relying on the felt experience. And, you know, and that's in some ways, I feel like with Arlene's art and it's, it's a felt experience. And, you know, what I don't know if people quite realize is, you know, Arlene, you know, originally painted the art seven, eight years ago, and Anka is remixing them today in this sort of mm. new digital sort of form. And, you know, and it's this remixing 
that is this sort of felt experience. And I had to look up a Rumi quote just, you know, because that's what I do. <laughs> and so he has this one amazing quote. I want to sing like the birds sing, not worrying about who hears or what they think. And so just if you think about like, well, what is your most authentic voice? Your most authentic voice is the one where you don't care what other people feel about it. It just is your voice. And that sort of unadulterated, unfiltered, just willingness to sort of express, I think it's just beautiful. And I want to go get some coaching from Melissa now too. <laughs> and how beautiful it is that in through this podcast and the art that's being created each week, we are weaving literally our gifts to create a new song, you know, that's like multimedia. It's incredible. Well, how does someone turn to music and song in into their life's work, you know, indirectly? I feel like that's been the most fascinating part of the conversation with Melissa is what she has uncovered from taking these singing classes and and what she's doing with it now. So we're going to get to hear a clip of the the major discovery she had taking this these singing lessons. I discovered from singing that I carried a lot of tension in my throat and my jaw. And I thought that was just from the stress of living. I now realize that there are like actually much much deeper reasons which have to do with like family patterns. I'm in the process of writing a book about um, is my one of my grandfathers um, was an illegal immigrant when he originally came to the U.S. in the 1930s. So it was a little bit of a historical rewind when uh, in the late 1800s, there was a law passed uh, called the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was the first law that uh, regulated and limited immigration based on nationality and class. And whereas at the time, all other racial groups were allowed into the U.S., Chinese folks were excluded um, for a number of reasons related to the economy at the time was was struggling. Uh, the U.S. was just coming out of civil war and didn't know how to deal with another uh, racial conflict after the wounds that were created by slavery in the U.S., and so the U.S.'s response was to basically shut Chinese people out. The challenge was that uh, in the 1906 earthquake of San Francisco, all birth records in the city were lost. And so as a result, there started to be this trade in immigration papers. So in order for my grandfather to be able to make it through the immigration process, uh, the immigration service caught on that this was happening. And so folks who were immigrating at the time um, or Chinese folks who were immigrating at the time were subjected to very intensive interrogations. And so my grandfather was literally handed a coaching book that had very minute details of the life of the person he was now inhabiting. And so it was so minute that it was things like, tell me about how many clocks are in your house. Three doors to the left from your village. How many pigs do they have? Draw me a map of all the houses in your village. Tell me who lives there, how old they are, and what their relationship is to each other. Like it was very, very detailed. And if he got one of those answers wrong, he would literally have been deported. Hmm. And the thing is that his sponsors, his paper family, if they got any of their stories wrong too, he would be deported. 
And so saying the wrong thing was actually for him like a very, like it was an issue of survival because he had grown up in a famine in the midst of Chinese civil wars. And so in that context, it creates a generational um, vibe echo that you could, I could say. And I realized like a lot of the patterns that I've had in terms of my voice actually stem back to that experience that's been in, uh, been in my lineage. And so in order to be able to unwind these patterns, I knew that I need to learn to sing from my own authentic voice because for my grandfather singing, like him expressing who he actually was, was unacceptable. Like he just wouldn't have been able to immigrate. He wouldn't have been able to create a future for himself and I wouldn't exist. That was so powerful. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a historical lesson and, you know, bringing it back to a lived experience in the present moment. Wow. And the, you know, she, I love that term generational echo, that sort of, what are those sounds that are vibrating across time? So much so that it wasn't until she started singing that she could really tap into the tension that she was feeling in her throat. And, you know, this person, her grandfather literally couldn't be himself. He had to play the part of someone else. So he didn't have his voice, you know, and he was silenced in so many different ways. And so for her three generations later to now have to unwind uh, that generational trauma in such a very specific way. And I just, I, I really appreciate also just her journey, right. From, you know, Harvard Business School to singing Persian poems. Uh, And I think part of what we're finding is just these journeys we have to really create, you know, on our own. And how do we own who we are, own our narrative? Um, It's not a given, right? Like the the Chinese Exclusion Act. that literally limited who he could be. Um, and, and so how important it is that we're getting to like host this podcast, right? Like this is us amplifying our voices um, and showing like, Hey, this is, these are important stories to tell. And, you know, it's not in some ways just for us. It is, there's a generational echo that's going to come from these. And I appreciate too, that um, we are a, mostly all Asian American team and Brian, you're honorary. Yeah. And how, you know, and how often do you get to hear these multitude of diverse experiences of, you know, being Asian American. And I remember in college learning about the Chinese exclusion act and being just so felt so violating, you know, that, Oh my goodness, you know, we were the ones that were, um, discriminated against and there's been so many others in history and and just the story around the interconnectedness of the families that were helping each other you know like if you messed up then you would threaten the safety of someone else and I know we're kind of going through this interesting time in the world where we want our freedom and also it's so deeply important to recognize our interdependence uh, from the individual to our families, to the planet. It's, 
it's an interesting kind of balance, you know, it's like, how can we have our own narrative that reflects our freedom and our unique essence and also recognize that we're each, you know, dependent on each other. Yeah, that we're in this together and, you know, we talk about being Asian American. We don't do this often, which I think is probably a very Asian American <laughs> thing is. to do. <laughs> right? We're like, ah, we're all Asian American, but we don't really talk about it. Um, and, you know, I wonder how much it is because we there there's a there's a certain self-effacingness that is expected in some ways. And, you know, and it's interesting to me that you know, you went to Harvard for ed school. I went and did the Harvard for design and um, uh, public policy. Like we did all the things you're supposed to do, <laughs> right? Like we're like, we're going to check every box and we're going to make it, you know, quote unquote, the American dream. And then to kind of realize like, oh, hmm, this dream doesn't necessarily feel like my authentic life, my authentic purpose, right? Like I am not, the voice that I have is not actually being expressed, um, you know, to that fullest sort of delight and joy that is possible. Um, and so to walk away from all of that, to really kind of create something new, you know, maybe this is part of the new story that we're, we're getting to tell. Yeah. And how important it is for future generations um, Melissa brings it down to literally how does that family trauma land in our cells? And I was really sh like struck by that point that she made when she shared this research. So I'm excited for our listeners to hear from her words. You know, how does this land at a cellular level when you have that kind of trauma and that survival uh, fear? There have been a ton of studies done uh, about the way that our genes express. It's basically a study of epigenetics. And for example, um, survivors of the Holocaust, survivors of different famines, uh, people who were in utero during 9-11, uh, basically tons of studies have now shown that uh, while these kinds of experiences don't necessarily change people's genes, they do change the way in which they get expressed. And survival, like having our survival strategies be switched into the on position in the body is actually a way to help future generations who are potentially going to be born into a similar kind of situation survive. And so in that way, survival can actually be um, a highly adaptive thing. The challenge is that if that need for that kind of survival um, state isn't necessarily present, that's when it becomes something that isn't necessarily as necessary. And so in that process of being able to just, for me, learn to help my body, learn to regulate has been a big process. Um, and being able to work with tons of different modalities, whether that is meditation, yoga, singing, writing. Basically, these are all practices that have helped my body to realize in the present moment what's actually happening and to help my body realize like, oh, there's actually no war. And so it's actually inefficient for my body to be in that kind of heightened state of alertness. So that's kind of one way that it shows up in my present day life. Another is um, 
learning to be able to think of my ancestors as allies. Um, for a long time, just knowing the challenges that many of my ancestors had, I often felt like my ancestors were, um, it was like heavy. It was like I was carrying a sack that just had a lot of weights in it. And now that I've done so much work in terms of unwinding those patterns so that they are no longer unconsciously running in the background, it's as if I've like shut a whole bunch of browser windows or it's as if I've like hmm. removed malware from my computer. It's not that it's <laughs> malware, but like equivalently, it's like I don't have these processes running in the background anymore. And it's just freed up so much energy and it's allowed me to just feel so much lighter I can definitely relate to the need to close some browser tabs <laughs> and, you know, it's just, you know, it, it goes back to like, Hey, you know, how do we be present and not let all these other sort of externalities be running in the background, you know? And I think that part of what I've been, you know, really practicing in this collective acceleration experience, you know, we talk about how practice is anything that disrupts habit. And Norma Wong, who's the Zen monk who leads the practice this week, shared how, well, the inverse is also then true, which is habit is a boulder to practice. And, you know, and, and in some ways, we have these ancestral boulders. We have these things that are heavy that we are carrying around. These are habits too. They're emotional habits. They're these learned habits. Um, and and so when we talk about practice, it's not like, oh, let's just practice gratitude because you want to be positive. No, part of it is recognizing, no, you're carrying some of the things around that if you're not conscious of them, are interfering with how you're moving in life. And I, you know, and I think that like, just I'm thinking about the art from Arlene and Anka and well, that's what sort of art does is art moves mm. boulders, right? It's like water. It like moves around things because um, it's an expression and expression is movement. Um, and if we aren't expressing ourselves, then all of a sudden we're putting up these dams. We're putting these things up around us that are literally holding us back. I'm literally imagining ourselves and how they're expressing when they're in this survival mode and how different it is to say, hey, you don't have to hold that anymore. Like you can express differently. You can express with joy. You can exhale and that was really captivating hearing Melissa's story about this connection with her family trauma and how she's unconsciously holding that in her body and then actively through her creativity releasing that. And it's interesting because all the Asian American friends that I have, they all hold that burden ancestrally. You know, we all, you know, we talk about it a lot among friends, just like, you know, the scarcity, the fear of not having enough literally is very real. Like family members that have died in past uh, in the past because of not having enough food or there being war. So it's such a good reminder of this healing work that we're doing with this art and different forms of expression. It's it's creating a new song at the cellular level collectively. And I 
so appreciate how nature is this constant teacher around how do we shift from individual to the collective, you know, even just the, the artwork this week with Anka's dynamic expression of the, the bee and its connection to the pollen of the foxglove. It's like everything is, it's all kind of interwoven. And I love Melissa's metaphor of talking about how nature uh, gives us so many clues around the cultural shifts that we are in the midst of shifting into and out of. And very much this whole season is about that, you know, the emergence of new ways of of finding our purpose, of navigating the struggle of life. Yeah, I think this just leans into, you know, I, I've been sharing, I'm reading slash listening to Father Greg Boyle's new book. And, you know, and one of the things that he says is that, you know, separation is an illusion. And, you know, in some ways, this is what Melissa is saying, is that like, it's an illusion to think that my ancestors are just back then, right? It's like, no, they're deeply interconnected into who we are today, right? And so for her to sort of like realize the tension in her voice is to realize that there is no separation between her and her ancestors. And at the same time, she is her own person, right? And this is, you know, a concept of interdependence uh, and autonomy, right? Like we are deeply ourselves and deeply interconnected. And both of these things can be absolutely true. We are given these binaries of this is what success looks like and this is what failure looks like. And I think that by setting up that binary of this is what success looks like, it unintentionally creates this fear of failure. Because when there's only one option, it basically means there is no choice but to do the thing that will actually get us to success. And for me, the paradigm shift that we're in the midst of is being able to actually shift out of that and to take a more creative stance. And specifically what I mean by that is to be able to actually feel and ask ourselves, what is it that I most want to bring into the world? Not because it's what is going to be rewarded uh, financially or monetarily because that makes me look good in the eyes of other people or it gives me a sense of importance or that I matter in the world. But what is it that I uniquely, what is it that my deepest self, what is it that my soul wants to bring into the world? Because in the way that nature has all of these infinite numbers of expression, I think that we humans also have an infinite variety of expressions. And by virtue of creating the success and failure paradigm, we've unintentionally created a monocropping culture. It's like we have decided that here are the crops that are worthwhile, and we're going to allow all the other crops that allow for real biodiversity that to die off. And what we're seeing now, I mean, literally in the climate, is that we actually need to bring all these other species back to have genuinely healthy, uh, to have a genuinely healthy world. And in order to do that, it requires a real shift in one, helping us to recognize that everyone has genius in them. 
it may not necessarily look like what we've been trained to believe, but nature doesn't make mistakes. Nature creates with the intention of supporting maximum biodiversity, and it's the same thing with us as humans. Another is to recognize that what it is that we're here to uniquely bring into the world, that's actually the crux of what it means to lead. I don't mean leadership in the traditional sense or in the way that I was necessarily trained to believe what leadership is, but leadership for me in this new paradigm is about being our fullest, most authentic selves. And that means bringing all of us together. I'd say that, like you're saying, my mind was trained extraordinarily well by the academic and workplaces that I've been a part of. But it took many other life experiences and many other forms of um, self-development to actually learn to be able to bring myself forward. And for me, that's what genuine leadership and that's what genuine executive presence is composed of. So that, in a nutshell, we're off seeing the culture shift. What a beautiful metaphor of nature being designed perfectly for biodiversity and how, yeah, by thinking of success and failure in such linear ways, it really does and intentionally create this monocropping culture and and how much courage does it take and curiosity to seek another path because you don't know what's possible but you know what where you're at is not right for you at at that like soul like bone feeling it at the bones like no this is not right <laughs> well i think that real sort of issue for me is that why failure is part of the journey, right? Like sometimes we only want the success and not the failure. And that's when that creates the sort of the binary. But when you sort of realize like, no, like learning is part of like mistakes happen. And in some ways, like the only way to learn something new is to also unlearn our old patterns. And I think that's, you know, sometimes we forget that like, Oh, we want to practice something new. You know, new is exciting. New is new. But really what's holding us back are old patterns. And how do we then sort of acknowledge those sort of those limits uh, and so that we can imagine more? And I know for me, for example, like success has always been like, oh, let's climb to the top of the mountain, right? Like climb to the top of the organization, you know, climb to whatever. And I feel like my biggest learning in life has been how to climb down mountains, how to unlearn sort of what I think I know is true. Uh, and sort of then all of a sudden it's going through those valleys and those other experiences that then sort of enables me to find new heights. And it's not about then going find the next tallest mountain, but it is about sort of going through the process of learning. Maybe that's, you know, part of why I love my diverse set of experiences. I love that process of like, oh, I learned this. But there was a limit to that. There was an actual height to the top of that mountain. And if I want a different view, I don't stay on that mountain. I actually have to go back down it. And I feel like we don't teach people how to go down mountains, how to unlearn old patterns uh, so that we can actually sort of really find our most authentic and true self. And how much more easeful sometimes is it when you're walking down and the wind's at your back and you're just like, oh, 
And it makes me think of last week's episode, just focus on, you know, just being and receiving and not having to try or effort so much. I think for me, underlying Melissa's story, the point that really resonates with my own personal journey is how much less energy is it when I'm singing the song that takes the least amount of effort because it is just so natural to who I am. And so much of my professional life was, you know, striving, like you said, Omar, like to reach this goal and then realizing, gosh, I'm exhausted. I can't even stay up here for too long because I I can, you know, I'm, I already spent all my energy on getting up here. <laughs> and, and yeah, how, how beautiful would it be if we lived in a world where we're all just, you know, having that ease because it is so core to who we are and it doesn't take energy to to be. I will say that climbing down a mountain is not easy. I, I like that you have a romantic <laughs> vision of it, but having climbed Mount uh, Whitney and after spending, you know, I don't remember exactly eight or nine hours climbing to the top of the mountain, going back down is actually pretty exhausting. And, you know, I remember several times, being like, I just want to sit here on the side of the path, but then realize like, <laughs> but that's not going to get me home. So I've got to keep going. And and so, you know, it, it, I think it's, we maybe some of that is the illusion, like, oh, it's easy to go up and hard to go down or hard to go up and easy to go down. And it's just like, this is life. And, you know, how do we just mm-hmm. be present to each of the experiences? Um, and maybe the real lesson is, well, maybe it's not so hard if we let some of those boulders down, some of those, habits down, those emotional sort of responses that aren't serving us, then it doesn't really matter whether it's up or down. It's just like, hey, we're, we're able to move with lightness. Yeah. So how do we embody our song in our day-to-day life? How do we be like that bee just buzzing around this flower and just um, tapping into our authentic expression, our voice? For the practice for this week is we're going to practice Melissa's way, which is to hum. And it's such an easy way to just uh, feel that vibrational echo in our bodies. And I'm just going to play a clip of her kind of sharing this practice and for you all to just plant your feet on the ground, just bring some awareness to your feet as you walk or as you sit and do this practice of humming to really embody that feeling of freedom when we're singing our most authentic song. Humming is a really powerful practice because it's something that we can do anywhere, anytime. And humming is kind of like a, vocal massage it's like the when we hum it basically creates it well one it stimulates the parasympathetic nerve system in particular the vagus nerve and it helps the nervous system to just settle and when the nervous system is much more settled that's when it's a lot easier to become present so I'd say that's probably the most accessible practice. And, you know, sometimes I'll start coming to myself while I'm waiting online at the grocery store 
or if I'm just walking down the street. Um, sometimes I get a little sheepish when I go for walks in my neighborhood to like sing at the top of my lungs. So I find that humming is something that is a lot more accessible and doesn't get me weird looks from my neighbors. Here's the humming a new song. Mm. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for inviting Melissa onto our podcast. Thank you, Arlene, Brian, and Anka for sharing your expressions and the way that you do. And for our listeners, you know, this is all being created and, you know, we need and love your support. So continue to please like, subscribe, comment, share anything you can do to help, you know, share this positive vibration uh, that we're putting out into the world. We appreciate you. Cheers. Thank you.